Good morning. In case you couldn't tell, we are starting into our study on the book of Acts today. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really excited about this. I've been looking at Acts recently, and there's just so much there. At the beginning of the year, when the leadership met together, talked about, prayed about, and then talked about what the, um, the things that we felt like God was emphasizing for us as a congregation, there were so many things that we, we discussed that really we felt like would be addressed through the book of Acts, and that's one of the primary reasons that, uh, that we've ended up landing on that. So I'm going to begin with kind of a, a brief, in, well, hopefully brief introduction, and then, uh, we'll, then we'll actually get into the text. So let's, let's start with prayer. Father, we ask right now, as we begin this series, as we begin, begin looking at the book of Acts, that, that we would be open to what you want to, to speak into us. God, we're looking to you today to have your way in our hearts and in our lives. We, we don't just want to come together and hear some nice words. We want to hear from you. And we're inviting you, intentionally inviting you, Holy Spirit, in, illuminate your word today for us. Let, us. let us see the things that we need to more fully understand and walk in. And Lord, we trust you to do that because you are so very faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know that, that Acts was written by Luke, right? Um, so in some ways, Acts is actually the, the continuation of the, the book of Luke. Um, if you think about it, it really kind of forms a, a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. There, there are a lot of things that we read in Acts that give us historical background for much of what we end up reading later on in everything from Romans through Revelation. But I want you to think about the very beginning of the book of Acts because it starts off in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Doesn't that wording seem a little bit odd? I mean, after all, Jesus has, has been visibly taken up. He's, he's gone, if you will, from them physically. And yet it says that all he began to do and teach. The, the obvious implication there is that there's more that he's doing and teaching. And I think the obvious implication in that is that he's doing it through his disciples. Now, some, some translations of the Bible refer to this as the act of this book as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, somebody recently said that they think it should be called the Deeds and Teachings of King Jesus Part 2. And I think that's pretty good because it's not, it's not so much about what his followers are doing, it's what Jesus is doing through his followers. We see it over and over. And that, I think, that should give us hope for today because he's still at work through his church. He's still at work through us. You know, I, I think in many ways, this, the, the, the book of Acts is amazing. I was talking to, to Dave Martin the other day. He said it was his favorite book in the whole Bible, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful book. We get to see the, the zeal, the excitement, the energy of those early disciples. We get to, um, we, we get to, to see witness right there as we're, we're reading through. We get to witness miracles happening right there. At the same time, we also get to see struggles and difficulties that they faced. And it's many of the same things that we and, and lots of congregations face today. Things like leadership issues, things like issues with money, things like ethnic divisions or theology uh, struggles or, or even serious clashes with religious or political uh, authorities. 
You're going to hear me talk about N.T. Wright uh, several times this morning. Um, I've been using a commentary that he wrote uh, about, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar, um, and he has a way of putting things into simplified terms, which I get, all right? Um, but he said this, it's comforting to know that normal church life, even in the time of the first apostles, was neither trouble-free nor plain sailing, just as it's encouraging to know that even in the midst of all of their difficulties, the early church was able to take the gospel forward in such dynamic ways. And it's true. Even with the struggles that they had, they were still able to, to, to take that word out and see it spread. So even though Jesus was visibly taken away, Jesus at this point, he's not seen as some ever more distant memory. He's not like a, this guy that was there and now he's gone and we remember this, this, this great man. No, he's present and you see it over and over throughout the book of Acts. He's there empowering them and strengthening them to do the work that he's called them to do. He's, he's helping them to walk through those difficulties and challenges. And, and even though we only see Jesus visibly, if you will, in like a, a few verses in the first half of the first chapter, well, except for later on in chapter 9, but I'll let the person who handles chapter 9 handle that, um, we still get to see him over and over. He's working through his people. We see his, his, his fingerprints, if you will. We see traces of him all through this book. And again, I think that should give us hope because it's not so much just about those early disciples. It's about Jesus working through his people. And that's true for you and me today. We, uh, we did a series recently about Pentecost. And uh, next week, we're going to get to look at Pentecost because it's actually in chapter 2. Pentecost is often referred to as the birthday of the church, the, the time that it started. Holy Spirit had, had come to Jesus' followers, given them a sense of, of God's presence and power that they hadn't known before. Uh, so much so that, that Peter, the guy who arguably has become their leader at this point, just a, a few weeks before, Peter was, was crying because he had had totally failed, right? He had lied, he had cursed, he denied knowing, even, even knowing Jesus. And that same guy on the day of Pentecost stands up in front of this huge crowd and says that something has happened that's gonna change the world. And see, I would suggest to you that what happened to Peter, he was now, God was now beginning to do in the whole world. New life, forgiveness, hope, power. Those things were, can I say, blossoming into the world in ways that they hadn't before. And within a short, remarkably short time, really, people throughout the entire known world had become followers of Christ. I mean, this is an amazing story. Here's my perspective. I think that the book of Acts can be seen as a, as a movie, as a, a great true story, where we find ourselves in the middle of the action that really, if you think about it, is the reason for the, the, I think, kind of strange ending of the book, not to take anything away from whoever's going to preach in the last chapter, but it's not really an ending. We're kind of left hanging. Uh, okay, what happens next? Well, we don't know for sure, but we get to find out because we're involved in it. We're not actually the ending. We're the, we're the sequel. We're the, the continuation of the story. God's working through us. So all of that is introduction, and um, I want to get into the text, but I do want to say one more thing, and that is that keep in mind as we're going through this today and through the rest of this study, which is actually going to take a few months, um, keep in mind we're just going to hit some highlights. 
because if we were to go through this entire book, verse by verse, all the way through, I'm pretty sure we'd be here until 2024, all right? Um, so we're just going to hit some highlights. But what I'm saying in that is that we want to encourage you to continue studying. We're going to encourage you to read the, the text every week. Look at it. Pray over it. What is God speaking to you in the midst of this? And how does this affect your life? Because we're not going to be able to bring everything out. Um, we're just going to give you some highlights, all right? Okay, so verse 1, we already read it. Um, it's addressed to Theophilus, which, by the way, so is the book of Luke. Now, we don't know for sure, is that an actual person or is it a generic name for some group, um, maybe all of us? Because the word Theophilus literally means a, someone who is loved by or befriended by God or someone who loves or, is be, or befriends God. Uh, the word Theo is God. The second part, Phyllis, think of... Um, the, the Greek word phileo, brotherly love, think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, not Pennsylvania, of course, but um, that's the idea. All right, so uh, Theophilus, somebody that loves God. So it could be addressed to us, could be a, a specific person who had that name. We don't know for sure, all right? Jump down to verse three. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I think the, the wording there in the ESV is a little bit awkward. Um, after his suffering by many proofs. See, there's a drawback to using a word-for-word -word translation. And don't get me wrong, I really like word-for-word -word translations. I really like using the ESV. But sometimes, because it's literally word-for-word, -word, the, the, the language, the wording can be awkward in our language. See, because languages different are translated something directly word for word, sound might like Yoda. Some of you got that. Okay, good. So let's try it from the NIV. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's a lot clearer. So, so basically, Jesus made sure that they knew that he who was dead was now alive again. He had returned from the dead. And it's important to recognize that, that um, one of the, the main ideas that Luke seems to drive home again and again, both in his gospel and in this book, is that the resurrection really happened. That, and, and, and he sees that as primary. See, the fact is that without the resurrection, we don't have a gospel. We have no good news. We don't. Without the resurrection, all we have is some memories of a nice guy who did some amazing things. Paul said, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're still dead in our sins. So Luke is putting it right out there, right at the beginning here, right from the get-go. The resurrection really did happen. This is primary, super important. But there's another aspect of the resurrection that kind of strikes me as I read this. Luke sa said that Jesus gave many convincing proofs, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Think about it. Jesus appeared to a bunch of people at the end of Luke here at the beginning of, of Acts, um, and he gave many convincing proofs. But his, his appearance, if you think about those, those encounters, it, it was, he was neither phys purely physical or purely spiritual. I mean, think about it. He, they saw him, they touched him, he, he ate and drank. So it's, it's not just spiritual, but he also walked through doors. He just appeared in their midst. So it's not uh, the, like a, a normal physical being like we would think. 
Jesus has been resurrected into some sort of spirit man, if you will. N.T. Wright said it like this. To us, that sounds as if he was a ghost, someone less than properly embodied. What Luke and the other writers who describe the risen body of Jesus are saying, rather, is that Jesus is more than ordinarily embodied, not less. His transformed body is now the beginning of God's new creation. And in God's new creation, as we know from passages like Revelation 21 and Ephesians 1, heaven and earth will come together in a new way. And that's what we see in Jesus after his resurrection. N.T. Wright, a little later, he talks about the the bigger meaning of the, the resurrection. He says this, it wasn't just that he happened to be alive again, as though by some quirk of previously unsuspected nature or by some extraordinary miracle in which God did the impossible just to show how powerful he was. Death suddenly worked backwards in this particular case. It was rather that because on the cross he had indeed dealt the main force of evil, decay, and death itself, the creative power of God, no longer thwarted as it had been by human rebellion, could at last burst forth and produce the beginning, the pilot project of that joined up heaven and earth reality, which is God's plan for the whole world. And if we understand that idea, then it it explains the the strangeness, I guess you will, of, of Jesus' resurrection body. He could eat, he could touch, he was physical, obviously, all right? But he could also go through doors. That's that's heaven and earth coming together. That's the spiritual and the physical being melded together, if you will. I've said it before that heaven is not so much a place as it is a realm. It's the spiritual realm. See, through Jesus' death, we were ransomed from the curse. We could say that the, the effects of sin were dealt a death blow on the cross. But his resurrection joined our physical lives with the spiritual realm. Are you with me? We have access into heaven, the spiritual realm, in ways that mankind did not previously because Jesus rose from the dead. So if we understand all of that, then I think too often we have sold short the reality of what Jesus gave us. Kind of quiet. See, it's no wonder we're told that we have the mind of Christ. We have access into the heavenly realm. It's no wonder that we we should be expecting to be doing the, the works that Jesus did and more because it's part of the new creation that we've been made part of. I think we've missed out on a lot. All right, let's skip down to verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, we often look at scriptures like this and we think these guys must be a bunch of real doofuses because they apparently still think Jesus' kingdom at this point is about overthrowing the Romans. But I think there's more to the picture than just that. And let me try to explain. Let me give you a little bit of background. I think that here, these guys, for three years, they've been with him. They've seen him. They've watched him. They've seen him do miracle after miracle. Crowds have increased. His popularity has grown through this time, right? In their minds, I think they saw him like they, they looked at David the shepherd boy. He was the, the king in waiting, the heir apparent, the guy that's going to be the next king. And it's just a matter of time. It's clear where this is going. There's no question in their minds. Jesus is going to take charge We're going to overcome. Everything is going to be amazing. And those Romans, they're going to be gone, right? I mean, that's all really, really clear in their minds. 
because of what's going on. And I think the, the capstone on all of that was the Palm Sunday, uh, the parade that happened. I mean, here, think about it. These guys, they've seen stuff growing and all of a sudden now everybody's there and they're hailing Jesus. This has got to be amazing. All right, we're right on the verge of the takeover. We are right there. And then what happens? Jesus is crucified. And they must have been left reeling. And so here we are several days later after that beginning of Acts here. And that mindset clearly had not left them, right? They're still seeing it as an earthly kingdom. I, you know, maybe more so after the resurrection. I mean, if, if he was the golden boy beforehand, he rose from the dead. Are you kidding me? This has got to be, this is it. This is the big thing. So that may have even more reinforced that, that idea. So they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I don't know, maybe it's just the way my mind works, but I think there, there was probably a little grin on Jesus' face because he's thinking, you guys aren't, aren't really getting it. I'm not restoring the kingdom to Israel like you think. Oh, I am setting up my kingdom, but it's far bigger than what you guys are thinking. See, you guys are thinking about this little piece of real estate here in the Middle East. My kingdom is going to be ongoing. It's going to be not just every tribe and people and language. It's going to encompass all of creation. You guys aren't getting it. It's way bigger than what you're thinking. And see, I think that's what we need to understand. Far bigger than what we've understood in the past. The picture is way bigger than that. And then Jesus tells them they're going to receive power. At the end of the book of Luke, he says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And then he repeats that here in the book of Acts, basically, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus is telling them, you guys are going to need the power of Holy Spirit. Don't just, don't just run off and do stuff on your own. You're going to need Holy Spirit power. Jesus knew that in order for his church to be effective, they needed to be empowered by Holy Spirit. Pastor Derek Jones, First Assembly in DeSoto, he posted this recently on Facebook. He said, the New Testament church is and always has been a spirit-led church. From its inception on the day of Pentecost until now, it was spirit-controlled. When man in his foolishness tries to restrict or even remove the spirit's governance, the church veers off into chaos, deadness, and becomes mere, merely an organization. It loses its vibrancy and power because that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Without him in charge, all that you have is man's best, and man's best is not nearly good enough. And he is exactly right. That's why Jesus told them to wait for Holy Spirit. If they were going to truly uh, build his kingdom, if they were going to be effective in his kingdom, then they were going to need God-sized power, not just man-sized wisdom, but God-sized power. And the same is true for you and me today. We need Holy Spirit empowering us. You know, I think from personal experience, I think, we can have a tendency to think that we know what to do. But unless Holy Spirit is activating us, is leading us, is, is guiding and working through us, we don't have anything to offer. We really don't. And he write again, if this is a play in which we are all called to take different parts, it is a play in which the only true acting is what happens when the spirit of the playwright himself takes charge. Whew. I love that. So, so we could say, if, if, 
if Acts is seen as a blueprint of sorts of the way the church is supposed to work, of the way that we as, as believers are supposed to be, then, then the fuel that powers that of all that we do has to be Holy Spirit. We have to allow him to, to empower us, to lead us, to fill us with joy, to fill us with peace, to, to strengthen us, to embolden us, to, to guide us into all that he wants us to do. This isn't our show, it's his. And we need his power on the inside, making it work. Now, Jesus also gives an explanation uh, about why we need Holy Spirit. When he comes on you, what's going to happen? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At the end of the book of Luke, um, Jesus tells his followers that they're going to be his witnesses, and then he repeats that same idea here. Think about this. Where else do you hear that idea of a, being a witness, outside of Christian circles, where else do you hear that? In a courtroom, right? So, that, that's, so the, the idea there in a court, what, what does a witness do? They, they tell what they have seen, what they have heard. And that's what we're supposed to be about. That's why Jesus gave us Holy Spirit is so that we would be his witnesses. But, but we, unlike those witnesses in court, we get to take it kind of a... a a step, maybe a lot of steps further, because we not only get to tell what we have seen, what we've heard, but we also get to be involved in it. We get to demonstrate it, if you will. That's why he's empowering us that we might be his witnesses, not just with, with words, but with the power, with the unction of Holy Spirit on the inside and that coming out of us. But I also find it interesting that he gives us kind of a progression here of how we're supposed to go out and be his witnesses. It says Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now, I want to make sure that we, we get this piece because I've heard lots of different people. And I can't say for sure that what I'm about to tell you is the, exactly what was meant here, all right? But I've heard lots of other um, ideas, and I think this one kind of does it better, if you will. We think of Samaria... As, so I'm just kind of explaining, giving you a little background. We think of Samaria as that kind of nasty region just north of Israel. Well, that's not really true. See, if you remember, right after King Solomon, the, the kingdom divided into two parts. There was the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Remember this, okay? This was called Israel. This was called Judah, okay? And the, the, the capital, oh, by, by the way, um, Judah was often referred to as Judea, okay? That's what he just said here in this, this text. Judea, the, the land of Judah, all right? Um, and the northern part was called Israel. That was the, 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 the 10 lost tribes where they ended up being later, okay? So it was sometime after that, after it was divided, still like 700 years before Jesus, that the Assyrians came in and captured Israel, the northern tribes. And what the Assyrians would do is that when they would, when they would capture people, they would take exiles and they would take them away. But they couldn't just leave empty houses and stuff because that's not going to be good. So they would take other exiles that they have captured and move them in from various places. So what you've got there is some of the Israelites that had been there um, remained, not a lot of them, but some, maybe they hid or something, I don't know but others made their way back. So there are some Israelites there, but there's also people from various different other groups all over the, the whole region. And what happened is they began to then intermingle, interbreed, if you will. And so they ended up with not only 
a mixing of the blood, but also a mixing of the religious practices. They had some of the, the Jewish religious practices, but then they added in the other stuff from the outside. So, so by the time we get to the New Testament, um, what you end up with is this, this place where, where the, the true Israelites, the people from Judah, see these guys as not really their brothers anymore because they've intermingled in so many different ways, right? So when we talk about Samaria in the New Testament, it's really a, a label for that entire region where the 10 lost tribes had been but are no longer. So if you think about it, when Jesus said Judea and Samaria, what he's really talking about is the entire promised land, that whole nation that God had given to Israel, all right? You with me so far? So when he says Jerusalem, this local area, Judea and Samaria, the whole country, and the entire world, what he's saying is it's supposed to be starting where you're at and going out from there. And I have to think that Luke must have had a smile on his face when he wrote that down because as we read through the book of Acts, it's exactly what we see happening. We see this, this ever-widening circle of the gospel going out um, into all of the world. And, and it's like people from all over that area began to believe just exactly what Jesus had said. All right, verse, um, verse 9. As they were, oh, I like this. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I'm just emphasizing that, because we're going to come back to it in a minute. A cloud took him out of their sight. Remember that. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come, into the same, come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Now, before I comment on that, I just want to read a passage from Daniel. Daniel's having a vision, Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I don't know about you, but I like reading the New Testament in Old Testament passages. I just find it fascinating. Now, I don't know for sure that Jesus didn't tell his disciples about this passage in Daniel, but I gotta think it would have more meaning if they actually saw the event before they read it. And so can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and you're reading the book of Daniel, well, probably the scroll of Daniel back then, and all of a sudden it just hits you like a ton of bricks and you're going, guys, guys, look at this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, Jesus, in the clouds going before, what? The ancient of days, the Father, the almighty God. Isn't that what we just read? That he's being taken into heaven in the clouds and what? He's given this kingdom that's going to last forever. It's exactly the same thing. This is the prediction centuries before of what we see there. I think it's amazing. Okay, back to the text. And, and I want to focus on that, the last statement there in verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jesus is coming again. It is one of the, the primary things that Christians for centuries from the beginning have agreed about. 
Um, Hebrews chapter 9, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he, who is, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is coming again. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Case for Christianity, which really was taken from his, his BBC broadcast talks, he said this, the time, this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. Let me just say that I'm really glad that you guys have chosen the right side beforehand because Jesus is coming again. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. Now, the word Maranatha has been a traditional prayer for the church for centuries Although the, the exact meaning is a little bit unclear because it has um, uh, origins in, in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Um, it's generally translated as come, O Lord, or Lord, come. The one and only time that it's used in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. ESV says, our Lord, come. NIV says, come, O Lord. King James just says, Maranatha. Any way you look at it, I think that's a good prayer. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. Come, Lord Jesus. All right, we're gonna drop down to verses 13 and 14. It lists out the um, 11 remaining apostles as well as some women and Mary and Jesus' brothers. And it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. If you look at it, 30 times throughout the book of Acts, we see the word pray used in some form, praying, prayed, prayer, pray. Jesus had clearly gotten it into his disciples that prayer was essential. These were a praying people. They devoted themselves to prayer. N.T. Wright said it like this, the constant references to prayer in Acts are a sign that this is how these very ordinary frequently muddled, deeply human beings, the apostles and the others with them, found that their story was being bound up with the story of what Jesus was continuing to do and teach. And I have come to be more and more convinced that that's how our stories are bound up with his, if you will. In a big, big way, it is through prayer. By the way, the worship and prayer meeting is Wednesday night. <clears throat> now, the 11 uh, that were remaining, the unnamed women that were there, Mary and the brothers, those are the only ones that are specifically mentioned. But then in the very next verse, it tells us that there are how many? 120 that are gathered. So this is a pretty good-sized group, right? And, and, and Peter stands up, he tells them that, that, that they need to replace Judas here, right? But what I find interesting is what Peter says. So, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Wait, what? Someone who's been with them the whole time? 
You know, if you you watch the the Chosen video series, I really like that, by the way, great stuff. But but we get the impression watching that that there's the 12 apostles and there's some ladies, including Mary. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, here we are at this point, there's 120 of them gathered together. I think maybe Jesus' entourage, if you will, is bigger than what we have thought. I mean, they, they're, they're going to choose some, between some guys that have been with them the whole time. I think that's a big deal. So the final choice is going to take place between um, Judas, or for, to replace Judas, is going to take place between Justice and Matthias, right? And, and let me point out that this is the first time either of these guys has been mentioned. No mention of them in the Gospels. And it apparently is the last time that we hear about them. I say apparently because later in Acts 15, it says, they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. If that's the same guy, then now he's got four names instead of just three. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, some, some scholars say, well, maybe he took on the name of the guy he replaced, Judas. But other scholars are like, would you want to take on that name? Yeah, so I, I, I can't say for sure, all right? But at best, one of these guys gets one other mention maybe, in all of the scripture besides here when they're, when they're doing this. I mean, I, I, they're, they're, they're not really known. We're, we're going to come back to that idea, but I just find that fascinating. But let me point out, as they're making this decision, what are they doing? They return again to prayer, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This was a big decision, had major ramifications. They were, they were filling out the original 12 apostles, right? This is a big deal, and so they're calling on God. They knew they needed help. But what did that help look like in their minds? They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I find it interesting that they kind of, at this point, revert back to something that had been very common in the Old Testament. They're casting lots. There's a pretty normal thing in the Old Testament, apparently, all right? But I do want to point out that from the time that Holy Spirit comes in large measure onto the people, we never again read about casting of lots. I think once we have Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, we don't need to wonder. We don't need to cast lots. We have the mind of Christ. We don't need that kind of thing. Can't make a doctrine out of that, but throwing that out there. All right, so I want to go back to the idea of of those two, um, Justice and Matthias, not being mentioned. N.T. Wright um, said this, Part of Christian obedience right from the beginning was the call to play apparently great parts without pride and apparently small parts without shame. There are, of course, no passengers in the kingdom of God and actually no great and small parts either. The different tasks and roles to which God assigns us are his business, not ours. What a great observation. See, God doesn't think more highly of, I don't know, the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham than he does of the mom who is staying at home raising godly children. Every person in the body of Christ has a role to play. Every single one. I think especially of 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. I mean, think about it. If you're a doctor and you start 
just willy-nilly removing parts from your patient that you don't think are really necessary, you know, at, at best, you're going to end up with a lawsuit. At worst, you're going to end up with a dead patient, right? Every part is necessary. Doesn't matter how small it looks to us on the surface. God has a role for us. You. You, the person sitting in your seat right now, you are necessary. All right, I feel like I've hurried through this way too fast, but again, if we went through every single piece there, we'd be here for a really long time. So let me give you four big takeaways that I think are important for us to, to, to continue to ponder, and hopefully you've got the notes and you can take these back. I said it earlier, we have too often sold short the reality that Jesus gave us. We have access to the spiritual realm in ways that mankind didn't prior to the resurrection. I think that's huge. I think that is huge. And we need to recognize that. What does that mean for us? And we're going to see it unpacked as we go through the book of Acts. Um, I think of, of Philip being translated from one place to another. I'm not sure that shouldn't be more common than what it is. We have access to that. Secondly, it's generally through prayer that you and I are bound up in what the Lord is doing. As I've been reading through Acts, um, I've become more and more convinced of that. And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, what does that look like in your life? What should that look like in your life? Number three, just a simple one, Jesus is coming back. Yes! Looking forward to that. Something that I think we need to think about more often, honestly. It gives us hope. And then number four, there are no insignificant roles in the body of Christ. Everyone's part is essential. Everyone's part is essential. If you're not doing your part, whatever it is, you're missing out. And we, the rest of us, are missing out. Every part is essential. Let's pray. Lord, today as we have pondered your word, got so many things that I feel like I have missed out on so often. Lord, would, would you forgive us for not recognizing and walking in the, the, the idea that the, the, you have in your resurrection melded together the spiritual and the physical. Lord, cause us to see that more clearly, especially as we're going through the book of Acts and, and let us to, to walk in it more fully, to, to not just uh, put that aside, but to, to recognize it, see it, and, and live it out more the way that you want us to. God, may we also be bound more with you through prayer. Jesus, you demonstrated that. You showed it over and over. And clearly your, your disciples got it. Lord, may we be like that. May our, our hearts be turned more and more to prayer, to seeking you. Lord, we are grateful that you have promised us again and again and again in your word that you are returning, that you are coming back for your people. God, we are looking forward to that day with expectancy, with anticipation. May that be in the forefront of our minds as we walk out our days, knowing that we are not really people for here and now, 
but we have an eternity with you. And Lord, may we, each one, remember that our role is not insignificant. God, that you have called us into your body for a purpose and that you've given us a role to play regardless of how big or small it might appear. It doesn't make any difference. It is necessary. And Lord, would you cause us to remember that and walk into that more and more. That we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.